Let's bow our heads together. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you have given us your word. Tonight as we look into this subject, the Antichrist. Oh, how we need the inspiration of your Holy Spirit. Father, show us from your word the truth. Speak to our hearts so that we will know that you are not talking about people you are talking about an institution. Most important, Father, I pray that through the feeling of the Holy Spirit tonight, we will remember the important one is Jesus Christ. I ask this in His name. Amen. Now tonight as we look at this subject, the whole thing is over the battle for the throne of the universe. That's what it's all about. It started in heaven. Satan says, I will be God. And so he began to spread his lies. You know, when we look at this, Revelation said his tail drew a third part of the stars of heaven and it cast them to earth. If you had, uh, you know, looked and studied, you would discover stars in prophecy was representing angels. So he was successful in deceiving a third part of his star. The, the angels. Now, why did John say his tail drew a third part of the stars? You know, if we look over in Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 15, it says, the prophet that teaches lies, he is the what? So what was it that Satan was successful in deceiving a third of the angels? It was his lies. He was able to deceive and to lead astray. If Satan has the power to be so deceptive to deceive angels, we do not stand a chance unless we have this and the Holy Spirit. We will be deceived. It's that simple. You will not be able to believe your eyes. You will not be able to believe your ears. You won't be able to believe what you feel and touch. You're going to have to go by, thus saith the Lord. Even Jesus said, the miracles and things he's going to do, they will be so powerful that even those of us who know what's in here will be tempted to believe it. It's time to pay attention. As we look at this, really the whole controversy is over the saga of a fallen angel. That's really what it's all about. He said, I will be like God. All will worship me. See, Satan doesn't care whether he tricks you into believing you're worshiping God and you're really worshiping him because of his deceptions and we're following traditions or commandments of men rather than following God. And Satan says, everybody's going to worship me. We read that the other night in Revelation chapter 13 that all will worship him except for those whose names are written in the book of life. God says, if you love me. Satan says, you will or else. Either he will trick you into it, or he'll fix it in the end that you have to have a mark to be able to buy or sell. And if that doesn't work, he'll have a law passed to throw you in jail. And if that doesn't work, the Bible says he'll pass a law to kill you. But his intent is that every living person on the face of the earth will worship him. 
That's what this is about. But the Bible says we ought to be worshiping who? The Creator. That's what the Bible tells us. So tonight, as we look at this, Revelation is presenting these kingdoms, they're in conflict. As we look at this conflict, it's called the great controversy between good and evil. Where did it begin? In the Garden of Eden. You know, that's where it started here on this earth. And I want to go on record tonight to tell you something. Eve was deceived. Adam chose. You know, I've heard some people say, you know, because they're all into this mushy stuff, isn't that a beautiful love story? He chose to get the punishment of his wife. Read on. When God came, what did he say? It ain't my fault. It's that woman you made, God. She's the one that did it. Did you read that part? (laughs) And when God looked at Eve, what did she say? "Uh Uh-uh, ain't my fault. You made that snake. Pass the buck, huh? (laughs) No wonder we still do it today. What happened? They were thrown out of the garden as a result of it. Time marches all the way down till we get to Noah. God said the world had became so evil and so wicked, he was sorry that he'd even done it and he was going to destroy it all, which he did. Then God through Moses, God told Moses to go do something and like many of us, Moses started making excuses. Now you know I've discovered excuses are like noses. Everybody's got one. And they all smell. And if you think that God's going to accept your excuse, go home and stand in the front of the mirror and see if you buy it, okay? (laughs) Moses said, who am I going to say sent me? And God simply says, I am that I am. You tell him I am hath sent you. And God brought forth his first true church, on the face of the earth. You see, there was only two choices. (laughs) You were either pagan, or you belonged to this church. And many, many people get off on the fact that because their name is on a church books, they're saved. (laughs) Be careful. Was everybody in this church saved? And it was the true church. A matter of fact, we discover something. When we get down to Jesus' day... (laughs) The high priest that was supposed to represent Jesus Christ, Satan went right into the very temple of God and got the high priest to call for the crucifixion of the Son of God. By the way, if Satan did that before, could he do it again? Absolutely. Satan is very clever, folks. Well, we have strike one with the flood. We have strike two with the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. How many strikes do you get in a ball game? One more and Satan's out of here. <laughs> what happened when Jesus rose? He was sitting with the disciples and he asked them, Who do you say I am? And they said, Well, you are the Christ. And Jesus said, Peter, upon this rock I will build my church. And so there came a third choice in the world and God through Jesus brought forth his true universal Christian 
Catholic Church. Now, I see a couple of looks on your faces. I don't care whether you want to admit it or not. That's your roots. Hello? Okay? By the way, the word Catholic simply means universal. That's all that it means, okay? And so now you could either be pagan or you could be Jewish or you could be Christian. You know, that's still pretty simple, isn't it? Huh? Yeah, I mean, still only three choices. But there was now three choices. As we look at this and begin to see, our question tonight, who is the Antichrist? Now, before we go into the Bible, I'd like to turn to the churches, and I'd like to ask the churches who they feel or identify the Antichrist is. So, if we look at this tonight, let's begin with the Catholic Church. Pope Pius X in 1907 said, We must now break silence in order to expose before the whole church in their true color those men who have assumed this bad disguise of modernism. These moderates seize upon the chairs in the seminaries and the universities and gradually make them chairs of pestilence. We define modernism as the senses of all heresy. It means the destruction of not only the Catholic religion alone, but all religions. Let's go down a few years and come to Pope Paul VI. Modernism is the most dangerous revolution the church has ever had to face. It is still scourging her severely. Its aims at driving the church to the end of the road to perdition. The auto-demolition of the church is the destruction from within. From within what? The Catholic Church. That's what they believe. Pope Paul II, precisely at the end of the second millennium, there accumulates on the horizon of the church and all mankind enormously threatening clouds and darkness falls upon the church and all human souls. December the 8th, 1983. We find in December the 8th, 1992, the split in the church is a de facto schism that to date has been for the most part hidden and contained. Soon it will be open. Now, I want to take a minute. If you're not Catholic, you can go to sleep, okay? But I'd like to find out, who does the Blessed Mother identify the Antichrist as? Some of you may wonder, why do I do that? You, you must understand if, if you are Catholic. The definer of the Scriptures is the church. And there... In addition to that, above the Bible, above the church, is the Blessed Mother. And whatever the Blessed Mother says, that's the final word, you understand? And so tonight, I want to quote from the Blessed Mother. Now, if you're Catholic, you're going to recognize these. I want to quote from the following sources. The Signs of the Times. This is a Catholic resource center writing and distributing Catholic literature throughout the world. Newsletters and magazines on the Marian apparitions and similar topics quoted printed quarterly. Now, if you'd like to get your copy, I've got the address and phone number up there. And by the way, you don't have to be a Catholic to get that every quarter. You can write in and get your own copy. Then a book that is entitled, To the Priest, Our Lady's Beloved Sons. In the intro it says, the reader should not be misled by the title into thinking that this book is meant only for priests. The messages contained in the book are for everyone. 
I even show you how to be able to get your copy. These are quotes from 1973 to the present day reported by Father Stefano Gobi of Milan, Italy, who has been receiving locations from the Blessed Mother. The final one is The Thunder of Justice. It is written by Ted and Maureen Flynn. Ted Flynn is the president of Max Cole Communications. That is a Catholic publishing house. And Maureen Flynn, who is his wife, is the president of the Signs of the Time. So, this is where these quotes are coming from. If you're Catholic, you know they're authentic. What has the Blessed Mother said? She went all the way back to May 13, 1820, and it was reported, I saw the Church of Peter was undermined by a plan of a secret sect. While storms were damaged, the secret sect was relentless in its goal to destroy the church, and for the most part, it will appear to succeed. We go to France, 1846, she appeared, and she says the church will be severely attacked by the monster modernism, would be unleashed at the end of the 19th or at the beginning of the 20th century. Rome will lose faith and become the seat of the Antichrist. That's really something, isn't it? That was eye-opening to me when I read it. In October 1973, as, you, as I have told you, the work of the devil will infiltrate even into the church in such a way that one will see cardinals opposing cardinals and bishops against bishops. In 1976, Satan has now pitched his tent even among the ministers of the sanctuary. So Mary says Rome will become the seat of what? The Antichrist. Now remember, I'm only quoting you know, don't get mad at me quoting it. I'm quoting authentic Catholic church, you know, good housekeeping seal of approval that the Blessed Mother has said these things. In 1983, this century is under the power of the devil. In 1984, the Lord has granted Satan this space of time. In 1989, Satan would enter in even to the summit of the church. You know, by the way, that's a fulfillment of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3 and 4. The man of sin, the son of perdition, will sit in the temple of God. Namely, a false Christ and a false church. In 1989, almost all will follow the false Christ and the false church. And these events will pave the way for the movement of the anti-church and the anti-pope. 1990. The man of iniquity will penetrate into the interior uh, and will sit in the temple of God. In 1990 also, the great trial has arrived for humanity. The last quote, by the way, false Christ it means antichrist. What does the word anti mean? Many people have a misconception. It simply means in place of. That's all it means. Anti means in place of Christ. Are you with me? The last quote from Mary I have is May 13, 1991. My Pope, Pope John Paul II, I confirm to you, is the Pope of my secret, the Pope about whom I spoke to the children during the apparitions at Fatima or Fatima, whichever one you want to call it. The Pope of my love and my sorrow. When this Pope has completed the task which Jesus has entrusted to him, 
All of you will be clothed in dense darkness of apostasy, which will then become general. Most will fall away from the practice of the one faith and because of the great apostasy and follow the anti-church and the anti-pope into perdition. So after Pope John Paul, it says an anti-Christ is going to arise. Somebody asked me, is it Pope Benedict? No. Okay. <laughs> Just say that right up front. But I'm going to tell you, when we cover, there's going to be another night now, we're going to cover the mark of the beast, and we get into that, you're going to be amazed what the Catholic Church has to say on the mark of the beast and, and what they're really afraid of. You're going to find the Catholic Church believes that the very next leader of the church will be this Antichrist that the Blessed Mother has said. But now, suppose you're not... Catholic. Maybe you're Lutheran. Well, what do the Lutherans say? I'm afraid that the universities will prove to be the gates of hell unless they diligently labor in explaining the holy scriptures and engraving them on the hearts of the youth. If there is a hell, Rome is built over it. It is an abyss which issues every kind of sin. Already I feel a great liberty in my heart, for at last I know the Pope is the Antichrist, and his throne is that of Satan himself. We here are of the conviction that the papacy is the seed of the true and real Antichrist. Faith of Our Fathers, Volume 2, page 122. Maybe you happen to be Anglican. Thomas Jefferson said, I mean Thomas Kramer said, whereof it followeth Rome to be the seat of the Antichrist himself. I can prove the same by many scriptures, old writers, and strong reasonings, referring to the prophecies in Revelation and Daniel, works by Kramer, volume 1, page 6 and 7. Maybe you're Presbyterian. Some persons think us too severe, John Calvin said, and censorous when we call the Roman Pontiff the Antichrist. But those who are of this opinion do not consider that they bring the same charge of presumption against Paul himself, after whom we speak and whose language we adopt. I will briefly show that Paul's words of 2 Thessalonians 2 are not capable of any other interpretation than that which applies them to the Roman papacy. Institutions by John Calvin. John Knox, who was the founder of the Scottish Presbyterian, said the Roman Pope should be recognized as the very Antichrist, the son of perdition, of whom Paul speaks. Anybody ever heard of this gentleman? <laughs> He's a hero of mine. I've actually been in his church in England and actually stood in his pulpit. And he wrote a commentary on the Bible. And I want to quote in his own commentary what he says. This beast of, is the Roman papacy. It came to that point 600 years since and stands now and will for some time longer. To this and no other power of earth agrees the whole text, every part of it, in every point. And of course, which text is he quoting? 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 3 and 4. We also discover that he says in another spot, this seems to mean the Roman Antichrist. Until a time, times, the number of Daniel and John seems to agree. Daniel was certainly prophetic in these things. And this prophecy reaches to the end of time, even of the Antichrist reign. Now maybe you happen to be Baptist. The first Baptist pastor in America, Roger Williams, in a sermon he uh, spoke, he said this. 
He spoke of the Roman Pope as the pretended vicar of Christ on earth, who sits as God over the temple of God, exalting himself not only above all that is called God, but over the souls and consciousness of all of his vassals, yea, over the Spirit of Christ, over the Holy Spirit, yes, God himself speaking against the God of heaven, thinking to change times and laws, but he is the son of perdition, and this sermon that he preached was recorded in the Prophetic Faith of Our Fathers by Frome, Volume 3, page 52. Now I know I've got some of these in the audience, Seventh-day Adventists. One of the early founders of the Seventh-day Adventist Church said this, Romanism will fulfill all the prophecies of Revelation 13, 14, 17, 18, and 20. The Roman Church will also fulfill 2 Thessalonians 2. The church will induce, was induced by the Roman leader to yield allegiance to the representatives of Satan, Constantine, the defied emperor, who became the bishop of Rome, bringing paganism into the church. Romanism is the anti-church who has the anti-Christ who, through the image, will force all the world to worship it and receive its mark in a book called Great Controversy. Now, in looking at this, folks, it sounds to me like if I'm listening to the church and the great theologians and the Blessed Mother, it doesn't matter if you're Catholic or Presbyterian or Lutheran or Methodist, Baptist or Seventh-day Adventist, it sounds like to me, according to the churches, we're all in the same boat. Hello? Now, if that's true, we ought to all start getting along. Amen? You know? <laughs> if we're all in the same boat, you know, and we're all headed for heaven, we better start getting along here. <laughs> Some people say the boat's in trouble. Some people say the boat's going to go down and that's going to be strike three. I want to tell you something I know this is not true. The reason I know it is not true, I happen to know the captain of this ship, and he tells me it's going through to the end. So you better stay on and bail, because you might not be able to tread water long enough. Hello? Now, you know, as much as I respect these great theologians, and with many of the things that they say and do, I always have to come back to one thing. We have inspiration given to us by God. That inspiration is written down in the Bible. And so to me, even though I have all of these experts and even, you know, with the Blessed Mother, my question is this. Does the Bible agree with the church? That's what's really important, isn't it? You know, when we look at this, what says the Bible, the Blessed Bible? This is my only question B. Why? The teachings of men so often mislead me. What says the Bible to me? So now that we've heard who each one of these main major line Christian churches identify the Antichrist as, let's see if the Bible will agree with the churches. I want you to turn to Revelation chapter 13. Revelation chapter 13. And we find here in Revelation chapter 13, beginning with verse 1. Revelation chapter 
13 and beginning with verse 1. I hope you brought your Bibles with you tonight. Revelation chapter 13 and verse 1. The Bible says this. Revelation 13 and verse 1. I saw a beast rise up out of the sea. Had seven horns, seven heads, ten horns, and upon his horn were ten crowns, and upon his head was the name of blasphemy. The beast which I saw was likened to a leopard, and it had the feet of a bear, and the mouth was as the mouth of a lion, and the dragon gave him his power, his seat, and his great authority. Now I want to stop for a minute. Outside of a book, has anybody ever seen a beast that looks like this? Good, because if you'd have said yes, I want to talk to you right after the service. Obviously, it's symbolic, amen? You know, the book of Revelation was written in code, but we've already discovered what's the code book? The Bible. The Bible says that it's not open to private interpretation. The Bible has to interpret itself. Now, the first thing it says, this beast gets its power, its throne, and its teachings from who? The dragon. Look at Revelation 12, verse 9. The great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan. So who is it that is giving it its power, its throne, and its teachings? Satan himself is exactly what the Bible says. Now, we want to find out who is this beast power. Well, we want the Bible to explain itself. So, let's go to Daniel chapter 7. The mirror of Revelation, Daniel chapter 7. We studied on night one the vision or the nightmare or the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had. Tonight we're going to study a dream that Daniel had. He says that in the very first year of Belshazzar, the king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and the visions of his head were upon his bed. And then he wrote the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel spake and said, I saw in my vision by night and behold the four winds of heaven strove upon the great sea. Now, if you were to go over to Revelation chapter 17 and verse 15, along with a couple of other texts, in prophecy, sea represents people, multitudes, nations, population. Are you with me? And wind represents strife or war. So Daniel sees war and strife amongst the people. And what happens during this war and strife? Four great beasts came up from the sea, diverse or different, one from another. What does these beasts mean? Look at Revelation, I mean, look at Daniel 7, verse 17. These great beasts, which are four, are four kings which shall arise out of the earth. So as we're looking at this, we're seeing that it is four kings. Now, listen, don't let this throw you. We still do it to this day. If I said I'm thinking of a kingdom that is represented by a lion, what country am I talking about? Great Britain or England, aren't I? Suppose I said a bear. Ah, how about an eagle? 
Only by eight votes. Yeah. The American buffalo missed by eight votes. If I'd have been alive there, it would have only missed by seven. But anyway. You see, we still represent countries by, by uh, you know, animals. Listen, we even represent groups of people by animals. For example, I know a group of people why <laughs> they're always so opposed to the other group of people and it doesn't make any difference how many years go by they've never forgotten a single cotton picking thing the other group's ever done why they've got a memory like a now the other group <laughs> it wouldn't matter if the other group came up with an idea they're not going along with it why because they're as stubborn as an old Missouri hello isn't it amazing God started it? Huh? Right here, he started representing kingdoms by animal. What does Daniel see? In verse 4, first was a lion. We're in Daniel 7, verse 4. First was like a lion, and it had eagle's wings. And I beheld... Until the wings thereof were plucked, and it was lifted up from the earth, and made to stand upon the feet as a man, and a man's heart was given unto it. Behold another beast, a second, it was like unto a bear, and it raised itself up on one side, and it had three ribs in the mouth of it, and of between the teeth of it, and they said unto it, Arise and devour much flesh. After this, I beheld, and lo, another beast. It was likened to a leopard, which had on the back of it four wings as a fowl, and the beast also had four heads, and dominion was given unto it. After this, I saw in the night vision, behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible and strong exceedingly, and it had great iron teeth, and it devoured and brake into pieces, and stamped the residue of the feet of it, and it was diverse from all the other beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. These are the four beasts that Daniel sees in his dream. As we look at these four beasts, they're four what? Kings or kingdoms that would arise. We find that in the dream of Nebuchadnezzar was how many medals? Four. How many beasts? Four. So we look at this and begin to see, we find the first kingdom was what? Babylon. Did you know the atheists who say this isn't true for a long time used this verse uh, along with a couple of others uh, to say the Bible isn't true? They had never ever connected lions with wings, okay, to the kingdom of Babylon. But along comes people who like to dig things up. And they did a dig. And I'll bet you can't guess what they found. Statues of lions with wings. If you go to Berlin, you can go to the museum. They actually transported back from their dig a facade of the temple. And as you walk up the stairs, on both sides of the stairs are lions with wings that were dug up in Babylon. Nobody can outsmart God. Then we find the next one 
was the Medes and the Persians. Now notice this bear is raised up. It also has three ribs in the mouth of it. Remember I told you the other night when God does something, he's only got to be wrong in how many places? Just one. If he's wrong in one place, we can throw this away. But you know, God dots the I's and crosses the T's, so there's no question about what he's talking about. We know that the second world ruler was the Medes and the Persians. When they first began, the Persians were stronger than the Medes. That's why the first king was a Persian king. But I'm going to tell you, if you remember the story of the Medes and the Persians, they didn't want any other ruler in any place. They wanted a governor in every part of the kingdom they ruled. Remember that? Now Nebuchadnezzar <laughs> was a wise old bird. He never fought a battle that he didn't have to fight. Before he'd ever go in and declare war, he'd send an ambassador and say, now listen, if you'll just admit I'm it and start paying me tribute, I'll let you stay on your throne. Well, the Pharaoh said, how much money do you want? And he began to pay tribute. The king of Lydia began to pay tribute. And so along comes the Medes and the Persians. They actually had to defeat three kingdoms to become the world ruler. Lydia, Egypt, and Babylon. It had three ribs in the mouth of it. The next beast, wings. I'll give you one text tonight. You'll find more in our homework equal swiftness or speed now with four wings this beast was super fast would you all agree with that and it's also different than the other one instead of having one head it's got four heads along came a young man by the name of alexander the great at age 25 he set out to conquer the entire world in seven short years he had done it he was so disappointed he tried to find other places he could go conquer. And he began to drink heavier than any time before. And before he was age 33, he drank himself to death. And when they went to elect a new king, they ended up with four kings divided into four sections. And that was Lysimachus, Cassandra, Seleca, and Ptolemy. There were four kings that were ruling over the Grecian Empire. Exactly like what God had said. Well, they ruled until 168 B.C. Then we discover along comes this great beast that has iron teeth. We discover that we know the fourth kingdom was what? Rome. It was represented by the iron legs and we had the Western and the Eastern Roman Empire. Here we discover this, that Rome ruled the longest for 665 years until 476 A.D. I want to quote from you Gibbon's Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. The images of gold and of silver or brass that might serve to represent the nations and their kings were successfully broken by the iron monarchy of Rome. Our own world history books back up what the Bible says. There's no question about who these four kingdoms were. How many toes did the statue have? How many horns does this beast have? 
I know that's an accident. When Rome fell, <laughs> those ten kings which shall arise shall be ten kingdoms. Let's go back to the Bible. Chapter 7, verse 8. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another little horn, before whom there were three of the first horns plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were the eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. In verse 20, the ten horns that were in this head of the others that came up before whom three fell, even of that horn had eyes and a mouth that spake very great things, whose look was more stout or strong than his fellows. In verse 24, the ten horns out of this kingdom are ten kings that shall arise. Another shall arise after them, and he shall be diverse from the first, and he shall subdue three kings. He shall speak great words against the Most High. He shall wear out the saints of the Most High and think to change times and laws, and they shall be given unto his hands until a time, times, and the dividing of times. These are ten what that shall arise? Right out of our ancient history books, there are the ten kingdoms that the Roman Empire was divided into. I know that was an accident too, right? As we look at this, I considered the horns. And there was another little horn that came up among them before whom three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. You know, uh, we look at this and we want to make sure the Bible interprets itself. This one is a little horn. Now, I want to have you look at something. From the Bible, what is it said in identifying who this is? Number one, in verse 7 and 8, it raises out of the fourth beast. Who was the fourth beast? It comes up among the ten horns in verse 8. In verse 24, it comes up after the ten. In verse 24, it's also different from the other horns. In verse 20, it's stronger than the other horns. In 8, 20, and 24, it uproots three kingdoms. And then we find in verse 25, it speaks great words against the Most High. If you've got a Bible with a marginal reference, it probably says, blasphemy. It wears out the saints of the Most High. It thinks to change times and laws. And it reigns unquestionable as a world power for a time, time, and the dividing of time. Now, did I get all of these from the Bible? Hello? Did I put anything up there that didn't come from the Bible? All right, now let me ask you a question. If we can find a power that would match not less than uh, eight, would we have the right power? No? How about nine? No? No? You want all ten. You don't want much, do you? <laughs> I'm going to tell you something tonight. There is only one power on the face of the earth that matches all ten. I want to remind you of this before we go any further. God is not talking about 
people. God's people are in all churches. I want you to know that. Satan's are there too. But God is pointing out a false worship system that gets his power, its throne, and its teaching from the dragon. And who's the dragon? Satan. So tonight as we look at this, I want you to know the one power that matches all ten is the Roman papacy. Number one, did it come out of Rome? It, did it come up among the ten? Would you say that's among them? All right. Then we find it come up after 476 A.D. because that's when Rome fell. When did it come up? According to the history books, the legal rec uh, recognized supremacy of the Pope was given in 538 A.D. when there went into effect the decree of Emperor Justinian making the Bishop of Rome the head over all of the churches, the definer of the doctrines, and the corrector of heretics. We see that History says that this power, the transference of the emperor's residence to Constantinople, was a sad blow to the prestige of Rome, and at the time one might have predicted her speedily decline. But we find that the development of the church and the growing of the authority of the bishop of Rome or the pope gave her a new lease on life and made her again the capital, this time the religious capital of the civilized world. Abbott's Roman History, page 236. Well, now it also says this is a little horn or a little kingdom. Anybody know how big this kingdom is? 109 acres. Would you say that's a small country? <laughs> Is it a country? Yes. It has its own postage stamps. It's got its own money. It has its own police force. It is. And the Pope is not only the head of the church, he's also the king of the Vatican. It's referred to many, many times as the Holy See. Maybe you've heard that terminology. That is the Vatican itself. Would you say it is a small kingdom? Huh? All right. It uproots three kingdoms. What happened? Listen, Rome knew it was in trouble. And so the emperor went to him and said, what can we do to uh, be able to give up some authority but yet retain some? And they said, well, what is the one thing we all have in common? They were all pagans. Are you with me? And they said, well, I got an idea. Let's send a letter to all of the ten kingdoms and say, let's quit fighting. We'll take our religious leader, you take your religious leader, and we'll let them form a board and we'll all be subject to that religious board. Guess what? I'll bet you can't guess how many of them bought it. Seven. <laughs> now, why would we get that clue? <laughs> Because three of them are what? Uprooted. The Hurliai, the Vandals, and the Ostrogoths were completely annihilated. You know, it's amazing. <laughs> I want to remind you. Uh, I believe that Jack Van Ippy is a man serving God as he feels God has called him. Okay? But men and women of God still make mistakes, right? I mean, you know, we look at many people in the Bible. We find they made a mistake. Have you ever tried to stay up with Jack Van Ippie when he's quoting scriptures? 
good luck, huh? As we look at it and we find Jack one day on his television program was identifying the Antichrist. And he said, now we have over in, you know, Daniel chapter 7, we have ten kingdoms. Then another one rises after that. That makes eleven. And over in Revelation chapter 13, we have a beast rising up out of the sea makes 12. And then we have a beast coming up out of the earth which makes 13. And that 13 represents the 13 countries that make up the European Union. And I'm sitting there listening and I says, whoa, wait a minute, Jack. Hold on, buddy. You have good arithmetic as far as addition, but you forgot something. We have to subtract three. Now we're back to ten. Now what are you going to do, Jack? Hello? Okay. And again, I want to repeat. I'm not saying anything against Jack. I'm just saying he didn't allow the Bible to interpret itself. They get uprooted. The other seven kingdoms in Rome rose up against the Aryan tribe and to totally destroy them for opposing the papacy's request. Seven of them are still with us to this very day. The Alamini became known as Germany. The Franks were French. The Burgundians, Switzerland. The Suevi, Portugal. The Lombards became Italy. The Vistagots, Spain. And the Anglo-Saxons became England. And those still, seven are still with us to this day. Rome was divided in 476. It came up after this in the year 538 with Emperor Justinian's degree. Well, now it also says it would become stronger or more stout than the other kingdoms. Did it? If you think about anything in history, at one point in time, before a king could assume the throne in any of these seven countries, it had to have the sanction of Rome. The king of Germany, Henry, was excommunicated. And in the mid of winter, him and his wife and a trusty servant made the trek across the Alps and asked for an audience with the Pope. He was made to pay penance for seven days. When he went in, he was forgiven, reinstated, and once more allowed to go home and ascend the throne. Was it stronger than the rest? Absolutely. History proves that it became. Now it also says it's diverse or different than the other seven. How so? The Bishop of Rome in the seat of the Caesar was now the greatest man in the West and was soon forced to become the political as well as the spiritual head. This one was both spiritual and political. It says that it speaks great words or blasphemy against the Most High. How does the Bible identify blasphemy? Jesus is talking one day, and several of the scribes and the Pharisees said, we're Abraham's children. And Jesus said, if you were really Abraham's children, you'd be doing the work of the Abraham, but you're really doing the work of your father, the devil. And so they again claimed, you know, uh, Abraham. And Jesus looked right at him and said, before Abraham was, I am. And they picked up rocks to stone him. Why? (laughs) Because you being a man maketh yourself God. See, they knew what I am meant. 
And they said, no, you're a man and you make yourself God. Now, was Jesus God? But what does the Bible just tell us? A man claiming to be God would be what? Blasphemy. I'll tell you another one that you learned in Sunday school. There were some friends who had a friend that was sick and couldn't get up, had palsy. And they took him to where Jesus was, and there was such a big crowd, he couldn't get to him. So they went up on the roof, took the tiles away, and lowered the man down. You know, the one thing I like about that story, it says that Jesus looked and saw the faith of the friends. Tell me prayer doesn't help. The faith of the friends. And what does Jesus say? (laughs) Son, thy sins are forgiven thee. And when he makes that statement, the Bible says there were scribes sitting there reasoning in their hearts and says, why does this man speak blasphemy like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus, of course, asked him, what's easier? Thy sins are forgiven or rise, take thy bed and walk. Could Jesus forgive sins? Absolutely. But the Bible is saying, if a man is claiming to be able to forgive sins, it would be what? Blasphemy. Now, I want to stop right here, because I want to give credit where credit's due, and I want to give you a reason why some of the things are believed today. Emperor Constantine was killing Christians by the thousands. Every time he'd kill one, He'd said, it's like their blood is fertilizer and I get ten more. He said, I guess if I can't beat them, I might as well join them. And he professed Christianity. Now think about this. As emperor of Rome, he was known as God on earth. He also inherited from his pagan predecessors Pontifus Maximus. That translation means he was the chief dude. Okay. When he became a Christian and entered into the church, it didn't take long before he made himself the bishop over all bishops. And of course, his name became the title as Pope. He made himself the head of the church. <laughs> and it wasn't too long after that, he added to his name Vicarius Christe which means vicar of Christ or the substitute of Christ. Now, wouldn't that make sense? He was already God on earth. Wouldn't it make sense he was also the son of God too? That was back in the 300s, folks. Is it any wonder they don't question it today? Hello? I mean, we're talking 1,700 years, okay? So when I show you these next quotes, I hope you'll understand how far back it goes. And where does it go back to? A pagan who represented the sun god, which is Satan, decided to come into the church and make himself the head of it. Now until that, folks, it was known as the Catholic Church. Are you with me? Now this is very important. Wash your ears out. Prior to this, it was known as the Catholic Church. After this, it was known as the Roman Catholic Church. That's very significant, folks. It changed its name when a pagan who represents Satan came in and made himself the head.
Now what happens? Let's read some of the things today. For thou art the shepherd, thou art the director, thou art the husbandman. Finally, thou art another god on earth. From the orientation of Christopher Marcellus in the fourth session of the Fifth Lateran Council. The Pope is not only the representative of Jesus Christ, but he is Jesus Christ himself, hidden in a veil of flesh. Catholic National, July 1895. By the way, that was reconfirmed in Vatican I. Remember what Mary said in 1820 and 1846? Rome will lose fate and become the seat of the Antichrist. In a book called The Dignities of Duties of a Priest, God on earth, the Pope is not only the representative of Jesus Christ, but he is Jesus Christ himself, hidden under a veil of flesh. Does the Pope speak? It is Jesus Christ who speaks. Archbishop of Venice prior to becoming Pope Pius X. The Pope is infallible. And the Pontiff's claim to infallibility became official Catholic doctrine in 1870. By the way, that comes from the History of the Popes, page 26. Rich Church, Poor Church by Malachi Martin, page 30, 83, and 85. Antichrist simply means in place of Christ. Vicar, substitute, in place of. The Pope is of so great a dignity and so exalted that he is not a mere man, but as it were, God and the vicar of God, Ferris's Ecclesiastical Dictionary, which is a dictionary used by the Catholic Church, can be found in any Catholic library. All the names in which the scriptures apply to Christ, by virtue of which it is established that he is over the church, all the same names are applied to the Pope. Robert Bellamy on the authority of the council. Antichrist, in place of Christ. Vicarious Christe, alter Christ. Vicarious Filii Dei, or the vicar of God or the son of God. All of those names can be verified from historical records of the short history of the Byzantine Empire, the Lakata Kafka, also the consistent dictionary of the English, and Christ in the Antichrist. It's well established those names were adopted. As we look at this, this one, by the way, you all heard on television. Most of you didn't catch it. But it was actually stated on national television, and you couldn't get anything else on any of the major stations when Pope, you know, the perfect cardinal, Joseph Ratzinger, became Pope Benedict. And the, uh, the priest who is subsiding over the ordaining of the bishop as the Pope, here's what he says. He is no longer a man, a sinful child of Adam, but an altar Christus, another Christ, forever a priest of the Most High. And the last part just blows me away. With power over the Almighty. And that comes from the Eucharist meditations, folks, and it was said right on national television. What a statement. He is the infallible ruler, the supreme judge of heaven and earth, the judge of all being judged by no one, God himself on earth. And that comes from the New York Catechism, page 127. Seek where you will through heaven and earth. You will find but one created being who can forgive the sinner, who can free him from the chains of hell. That extraordinary being is the priest, the Roman Catholic priest. 
God himself is obligated to abide by the judgments of his priest, either not to pardon or to pardon according as they refuse or give absolution. The sentence of the priest precedes and God subscribes to it. Dignities and Duties of the Priest, volume 12, page 27. You know... I'm just, I'm, I'm reading this right out of current materials, okay? And remember, the one statement you just got done hearing it when Pope Benedict was made Pope. It was right on television. Most people didn't recognize it, but it was. But does it speak blasphemy? Absolutely. I want you to know something if you're Catholic tonight. You don't need any human being to obtain forgiveness from God. Paul says you can come boldly before the throne of grace. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, and that man is Christ Jesus. Listen, folks, you might come to me, and you might have done something wrong, and you might say, please forgive me, and I can say, no, I'm not going to forgive you. That's my prerogative, okay? The only trouble is the Bible says if I don't forgive, I won't be forgiven. So you're on very dangerous ground. (laughs) But no human being can withhold the forgiveness of God. No human being. I I just want to tell you that tonight. It shall persecute the saints of the Most High or make war on God's people. Great numbers were driven from their habitations with their wives and children stripped naked and many of them were inhumanely massacred. History of the Popes, Volume 2, page 334. You all remember what happened during what we refer to as the Dark Ages. From the birth of popery to the present time, it is estimated by careful, credible historians that more than 50 million of the American family have been slaughtered for the crime of heresy by the popish persecutors. And by the way, would you like to know what the number one heresy were they were, they were persecuted for? They said, no, we'll go by the Bible, not by what the Pope said. And for that, they lost their lives. You know? Isn't that amazing? Now, I'm going to tell you something. Pope John Paul did something that perfect Cardinal Ratzinger got mad at him and told him he made a mistake. He had no business making it, and many of the other cardinals agreed with him. And here, what mistake did Pope John Paul make? (laughs) Pope John Paul II wants to forgive and forget the schism with the Eastern churches. San Francisco Chronicle, May 3rd, 1995. Listen, folks, there has been war between the Eastern Orthodox and the Roman Catholic Church for many, many, many years. Pope John Paul, in a plead for Christian unity, asked for forgiveness of past wrongs. I ask forgiveness for the wrongs inflicted on the non-Catholics during the turbulent history of the 17th century. Washington Post, May 22, 1995. Why was Cardinal Ratzinger upset with him? Because the church is infallible. It can't make a mistake. And yet the Pope asked for forgiveness because of the mistake that was made. You know, I'm so glad that Pope John Paul recognized that there was a mistake. And by the way, should we forgive them? Absolutely, folks. Absolutely. Persecuting? It was a persecuting power. 
Now we come up, change God's law. He will think to change times and laws. The Pope has the power to change times, to aggregate laws, and dispense with all things, even the precepts of Christ. That comes from the Episcopal Cavadium. God said, and the evening and the morning were the first day. And the evening and the morning were the second day. And the evening and the morning were the third day. See, according to God, guess what? We may call this Friday night, but God says it's Saturday. Hello? The dark part comes before the light part in the day. This power came along. Go down to your local library and look it up for yourself. This power came along and said, no, this is not right. It will be from midnight to midnight. And all the world follows what it did and never even questions it. Can anybody really change God's time clock? No. That's why the Bible says he only thinks to change. (laughs) Constantine said, listen, I want you to make peace with these Christians and I want you to bring them into the cathedrals and give them a place. Now about that time, the Christians were ready for some compromise. You understand? And so they went to the Christians and they said, listen, you don't have a church. You don't have a priesthood. You haven't got any money. Well, no, they were all hiding out. If anybody had known where they were, they'd have been dead, you know. They said, listen, we're going to do you a favor. We're going to set up a a special priesthood just for you Christians. We're even going to put you on the payroll, and you can come in and worship in our cathedral. A wise elder said, wait a minute, we can't come into your church. You got all these idols. Now, the pagans were not ignorant of Christian teaching. So they asked the Christian and said, listen, if you taught all of your members to keep the first commandment, could they ever be guilty of breaking the second? Now, you all know what the first one is, right? Thou shalt have no other gods before me. See, the pagans said, God actually established the law in number one, but just so you all wouldn't make any, any questions, he explained it in number two so that you'll understand perfectly. But the explanation really isn't necessary if you teach all of your members to keep the first commandment. All we got to do is eliminate that one and you can now worship in our temples. Guess what? They bought it. But now there was another wise elder who said, wait a minute, if we take out number two, that means there's only nine and every Christian knows there's ten. And so the pagan said, oh, that's not a problem. Let's just take number 10 and divide it into two. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, and thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's goods. You still have 10, and we haven't changed the intent of your God's law one bit. And guess what? The Christians bought it. Can anybody change God's law? No. Well, we got one left. It would rule for a time, time, and the... Half a time. And you said I had to have all ten, right? Go over to Revelation chapter 13. Revelation chapter 13. The Bible says this. We look first in verse 14. And I want Revelation 12, not 13. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm looking there and I'm saying, that's not the right verse. Revelation 12, 14. 
And into the woman there were given two wings as a great eagle, that she might fly into the wilderness, under the place where she is nourished, for time, times, and a half a time from the face of the serpent. Does that sound like what Daniel said? Now I want you to back up. They're still in Revelation chapter 12. And look at verse 6. The woman fled into the wilderness where she hath prepared a place of God and that he, they should feed her there a thousand two hundred threescore days. So one place we find time, times, and a half a time, and the other place we find 1260 days. What is it? A Jewish time, by the way, they went by the moon, not the sun. There were 360 days in a year. Times is two of them, 720. And a half a year is 180. So when we add them together, guess what? We come up with 1260 days. It's exactly the same time. Now, if we take 1260 days and apply it to the identification of this little horn power, guess what? Boing! It don't fit. And you said I had to have 10. Well, we discovered in prophecy a day equals a year. So when we look at this, folks, we are not talking about 1260 days. We're looking at 1260 years. Now let's apply it. Of the ten divisions of old Rome, seven accepted the supremacy of the bishop of Rome. The other three opposed the supremacy. War was made on these. The last of these opposing powers, the Goths, were overthrown in the year 538. And this gave papal Rome the undisputed supremacy. And the 1260 years thus began. So we see it began at that time. Uh, Vercalis ascended the papal throne in the year 538 under the military protection of Belsarius, the history of the Christian church, volume 3, page 327. So the 1260 years begins 538. We count 1260 years and it brings us down to 1798. What happened in 1798? Anybody remember this guy? They outlawed religion, took a woman and set her up as the goddess of reason. And Napoleon ordered his general, Berthier, to march upon the Vatican. And so in the year 1798, he, Berthier, made his entrance into Rome and abolished the papal government and established a secular one. Encyclopedia Americana, 1941 edition. Berthier entered Rome on the 10th of February 1798 and proclaimed a republic. Half of Europe thought Napoleon's veto would be obeyed and that with the Pope, the papacy was dead. Modern papacy, Reverend Joseph Rickenbaugh, page one. Exactly 1260 years, the rule came to an end. All ten. Do you see that the four beasts and what they're ruling, but when we get down to the end, the dividing of nations will go unto the end of time. I want to give you just a couple of more, and then I'm going to let you go home. If we look at Revelation 13 and we look at these, this beast, do you notice here in this beast, it has the mouth of a lion, the feet of a bear, the color of a leopard, and it's also got ten horns. As we look at this, 
Do you see what Daniel saw? Daniel saw four different beasts, but John sees all these beasts combining together into one. When were they all divided into one? Way back in the year 476 when Rome fell and they began to serve a board of religious leaders. It all became one. The little horn of Daniel 7 and the beast of Revelation is the same power combined. Now look at Revelation 13 and verse 3. I saw one of his heads as were wounded to death, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the wonder, all the world wondered after the beast. So let's add 11 Bible identifying marks. The deadly wound, which happened in 1798, would be what? Healed. Mussolini and Gaspar signed an historic Roman pact. The Roman question tonight was a thing of the past, and the Vatican was at peace with Italy, affixing the autographs to the memorable document, notice the next words, healing the wound. Extreme cordiality was displayed on both sides. San Francisco Chronicle, February the 11th, 1929. If you read some of the headlines overseas in the newspapers there, it said, Viva la Pope, Viva la Pope, Viva la King. Why? Once more, the Vatican was now a kingdom, not just a church. And so the wound was, was healed. Now it also says all the world would wonder after the beast. So we have 12 identifying marks. All the world wonders after him and becomes a worldwide power. Listen, folks, this came true in your own lifetime. The papacy has gained worldwide influence and prestige and prominence. Many, many things we see all over it. But let me tell you something. When Pope John Paul II died... There were more kings, queens, and presidents and leaders of country there than had ever been recorded in the history of the world. Literally all the world went to pay homage. You couldn't get anything else on TV. And when Pope Benedict was made Pope, it too was publicized to the whole world and many of the world leaders were there. It has happened in our own lifetime. I want to give you another one. Verse 18. Here is wisdom, the Bible says. Revelation 13, 18. Let him that hath understanding count the number of the beast, for it is the number of a computer in Belgium, and its number is 603 score and 6. What, doesn't it say that? Oh, it's the number of the barcode. I know you're all laughing, but these are all private interpretations. Have you heard these things, right? What does it say? It is the number of a man. Now, isn't that a crazy way to spell computer? Huh? What's the number? 603 score 6. Some people say, Jack, when you get to the mark of the beast, I don't have to come because I know what the mark of the beast is. It's 666. No, it's not. I'll prove it to you. Just back up. Verse 17. That no man might buy or sell, save that he had the mark, comma, or the name of the beast, comma, or the number of his name. So the mark cannot be the number. Hello? Okay? I know. What's the mark? 
Wait till we get there. There's only one way to eat an elephant. One bite at a time. Amen? But now we have 13 Bible-identifying marks. The number would be 666. Here is wisdom, and it tells us that this is the number of a, of a kingdom, beast, and the man who rules it. Are you with me? And of course, Antichrist in place of Christ and these names that are backed up in history. I want you to know if you take the name okay, of the Roman Pontifate and it tells us that it was in the Sunday Visitor, Roman numerals equal numbers. That's before new math, any of you young people. Vicarious filii day, if you apply the numbers to the very name, guess what it adds up to? <laughs> you know, I've been told President Reagan's name equals 666. And you know, that's possible. But President Reagan didn't have 12 other Bible-identifying marks. Hello? Come on. We put the ingredients together. We mixed it all up. We poured it out. We baked it. We put on the, you know, the frosting. All I did was add a candle, folks. Are you with me? You know? But it's there. Two more and I'm going to send you home. Revelation chapter 17. Revelation chapter 17. Here it talks about the great whore. Woman in prophecy equals church. I want you to notice in verse 3. And by the way, this woman is riding a scarlet-covered beast. And if you look over in Revelation chapter 12, it talks about this great red dragon having seven heads. You know, And <laughs> then it says in verse 9 that the dragon is the... Satan himself. He carried me away, verse 3, into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet-covered beast, full of the names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. And the woman was arrayed, or clothed, in purple and scarlet cover, and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand, full of abominations and filthiness. So the woman is dressed in what? Purple and? Anybody know what the Vatican colors are? I know, that's an accident. One more. Verse 9. Here is a mind that hath wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains upon which the woman sitteth. In verse 18, the woman which thou sawest is a great city that reigns over the kings of the earth. If you're a computer person, go home tonight and Google city that sits on seven heads and I'll bet you'll never guess which city comes up. Rome. By the way, you also get one in Georgia. Okay? But it certainly doesn't rule over <laughs> a great many people. Okay? If you've ever flown into Rome, you can see them perfectly. There is no question that it sits on seven mountains and it is a great woman who rules over the kings of the earth. Remember what the Blessed Mother said? Because of the great apostasy, it would follow the anti-church and the anti-pope into perdition. As we look at this, folks, does the Bible agree with the churches? Certainly seems to, doesn't it? Mary and the Catholics say it's going to be the next pope. And the other churches say, well, technically we believe it's been fulfilling it since the time of 538. Can you remember it, Heidi, and ask me afterwards? 
I want to get everybody out of here. I promise to get them out, and I want to make sure. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea. Why? Because the devil has came down with great wrath. Why? Because he knows he has but a short time. It's called war or the great controversy, folks. That's what it's all about. And when we look at this and discover this great controversy, <laughs> it's amazing what's going to happen next in this war that we're up against. The mark of the beast. That's simple. We'll know what it is. We'll study it in our continuing education. No guessing. It comes down to this. Who will you worship? The Bible says, will you worship the Creator? Or will you worship someone else? And I'm sorry for that. There's only one of those tonight, and I should have discovered it and took it out, okay? But anyway, there won't be any more of those. Jose says, my people are rejected, or they are destroyed for a lack of knowledge, and if you reject knowledge, I will also do what? Reject you. We need to know what the Bible says. Who will you worship? That's what it comes down to. As for me and my house, I want to be able to worship God. Oh yes, very, very soon. Monday night, the unpardonable sin. Let's stand together as we pray. And don't forget, Monday night, we won't be here. We'll be over in the community center at, on Pine Street. Pine and Whipple. Okay. Heavenly Father, tonight as we've studied in Your Word, and we see plainly that the churches, I believe through Your inspiration, has been identifying the power that the Bible talks about for years. But we see, more important than what the churches say, the Bible tells us the same thing. Please, Father, tonight, if I've offended one person, give them the power to forgive me. You know that was not my intention, but you've called me to preach the truth, and that I've done. More important than knowing who the Antichrist is is that we know who the real Christ is. So send us home with a peace of mind, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. amen. Please don't go find a Catholic brother and sister and tell, her, tell them they're going to hell. I didn't say that, okay? I believe there's going to be many, many Catholic Christians in heaven. <laughs>